again, thank you for joining us today. It's good to be here today. And if you were here last week, or I should say if you weren't here last week, you missed probably one of my favorite services that we've ever done. It was a great service. I know a lot of you, uh, last week we just wanted to pray. We're gathered here today and we've had so much violence in our city and our country that we thought, why don't we just pray? So we just put a microphone up here and I thought maybe five, ten minutes we would pray. We did it the entire service. And it was beautiful and I absolutely loved it. And we all went to lunch afterwards and talked about how great it was. And as I was reflecting on it, I said to Becky, you know what I just really realized? How in church there's two things that people really want. They want to be empowered and they want to be participate. And I think that's what we had last week. Everybody was empowered. Everybody had an opportunity to participate. And it was a wonderful service just to say, let's take some time and pray for this country because we all know we really could use it. And it kind of brought up the conversation at lunch. Maybe we need to do church in a radically different way. Maybe we don't just need to do it the same format every week, but maybe we need to think about how could we do church different so we are doing more Sundays where we say, let's just pray. Because I think really the three elements of church is worshiping God, building community, and missions. Those three things need to be participate in each church service. And I think sometimes we have a lot of worship, we have a lot of community, but the missions part sometimes is a little bit lacking. And I think let's get creative and let's figure out a way how could we do church in a way that we are giving a lot of a lot of oomph to the missional part of the church, the sending part of church. So I think we have a lot of fun in front of us as we think about how could we do things a little bit different because our society has been changing tremendously over the last week and over the last month. The world is completely different. And I think the church needs to adapt so we can be more relevant to the, to the culture today. So I think it's fun to think about because I think the truth is all of us are sitting here watching what's happening in our country in shock. I mean, shootings used to be a rare occasion. Now it's common. I mean, last week we prayed hard for our country and I think we had multiple shootings even in the last week. Even locally, we've had them in Grand Rapids, we've had them in Holland, and not to mention the ones, the big ones that have been happening around our country. And I think we're shocked and we're grieved, and I think all of us are lamenting and we're praying, and we're, probably a lot of us are asking the same thing, God, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? How can I be part of the solution? And you know what, I was looking back thinking, you know what, the disciples, when they were gathered on Pentecost Sunday, I think a lot of them were praying the same thing, God, what do we need to do? I mean, the disciples were gathered, 120 of them, because Jesus, when he left to go to heaven, he said to them, wait. I want you to wait until the Holy Spirit comes upon and gives you power. And so they basically had a 10-day prayer meeting. And I'm sure they had a lot of fun, but I think those disciples were a little anxious as well. Here they are in Jerusalem. They're happy that Jesus, they figured out he rose from the dead. Their friend didn't just die forever, but he rose from the dead. And then they saw him ascend into heaven. They see this power of God right in front of them. And they're excited to receive the Holy Spirit. But they live in Jerusalem. They live in the Roman Empire, and they are all kind of wondering, am I next? It wasn't the safest place to be a follower of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And so they are meeting together, praying for 10 days. And I think some of their prayers are, what do we do? What do you want us to do? 
How do we react to this culture that we live in? And that question of what do we need to do and asking God what do we need to do has been going on for thousands and thousands of generations. You go back to the book of Micah. And Micah is a prophet who's raised up to confront the sins of the Israelites. And Micah comes to the people of Israel and he says, you know, you, you've been sinning. He tells the leaders, you've been poor leaders. And because of your poor leadership, there's judgment is going to come on you. But God isn't going to just do judgment to punish you, but God is going to use his judgment to bring you restoration. Because Micah confronts the people of Israel and he says, you have two things that you're doing very poorly. Number one, you hate what is good and you love what is evil. And the second thing that he tells them is that you hate justice and you twist everything. So Micah has a strong prophetic word for the Israelites about what their future is going to look like because they're going to have to go to, through judgment. And so the Israelites, well, they're a little nervous. Okay, the reality's hitting home. Okay, we're in trouble now. And so what do they do? They start asking, what do we need to do? What do we need to do next? And they go to Micah and they said, Micah, what do we need to do? Should we offer some more sacrifices? Do we need to have a special prayer meeting? What do we need to do? Because, well, honestly, they're trying to avoid what's going to happen to them. But they're inquiring of God and saying, what do we need to do? And Michael, Micah responds to the people, and he doesn't give an answer like you would expect, like, okay, you got to do this penance, or you have to do this repentance, or you have to offer these sacrifices. Instead, Micah says to him, God doesn't want any of that. This is what God wants from you. He wants you to do Micah 6, verse 8, which says, He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's God's response to a nation that's heading for judgment. He wasn't asking them to repent. He wasn't asking them to come up with some prayer service. He was saying, just do what I've told you to do all along. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with our God. I think it's been fantastic that Greg has been leading us in worship for the last six or seven months, and he sings that song quite consistently. This little, simple, little song, do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God. That's what God says to a nation that's inquiring him. What do we do next? And I think that's what God is speaking to all of us today. How do we respond to what's going on in the world? We need to do some justice. So what does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to love mercy? What does it mean to walk humbly with our God? Justice is a very biblical word. It's used over 200 times in the Old Testament. You can find it 400 times used in the entire Bible. But yet, when you talk about justice, some Christians think you're talking about heresy. I mean, it's a very tense word right now to bring up justice. Now, when you bring up justice, a lot of conservatives get really antsy and think, oh, no, you're trying to give some real liberal stuff. Tell me some liberal stuff. And when conservatives talk about justice, a lot of liberals can get nervous and think, oh no, what, what, what controlling things are you going to do right now? And a lot of people that are, tend to be a little bit more on the socialist side of perspective, when they hear other people talking about justice, they wonder, yeah, you're talking about justice because you want to make a little more money. So we hear justice, and it's like a popular word command in the Bible, but yet a lot of us hear it and we get suspicious. We get a little nervous, especially when you say the word social justice. Ooh, you can make a lot of conservative Christians really nervous very fast. 
But you know what social justice really is? You take the biblical word righteousness and you put it with justice, it actually translates into social justice. Social justice is a biblical term. It's a biblical mandate. We've just interpreted it poorly in our understanding over the years, but we need to get back to social justice. So I want to talk a little bit about that today, but I don't have a whole time. I mean, we're, it takes a lot of messages to really give a good message on justice. But I want to talk to you on one place where you see justice. You see a lot of justice rooted in Pentecost Sunday. Pentecost Sunday was about the Holy Spirit, but it was also about justice. It was about God giving people what they deserved. It was about God giving people what they needed most. See, the day that we celebrate just the Holy Spirit is a day to celebrate justice. It's a day to celebrate that God in his mercy gave us justice. See, I think a lot of times when we look at Pentecost Sunday, we think that Pentecost Sunday started in Acts chapter 2. But Pentecost Sunday actually started in the Old Testament. Pentecost Sunday was actually an Old Testament feast that was referred to commonly in the book of uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy. The word Pentecost simply means 50. It's 50 days from Passover. It's kind of a boring word. Now, if you want to be really technical, the real word for Pentecost is a Hebrew word, Shavuot. You could really say in Acts chapter 2, on the day of Shavuot, the Holy Spirit came. When the disciples were gathered on the day of Pentecost, they were actually celebrating a Jewish festival that was started thousands of years earlier. And see, the Israelites loved to go to Jewish festivals. They loved the Jewish feast. That was a lot of fun for them. And so the, Jew, the, the Israelites would get together on these seven annual the, the festivals and they went because they wanted to go. It was going to be fun. And especially they liked Shavuot. Why did they like it? Because what they would do on that day of Pentecost, they would read from the book of Exodus how God saved their ancestors from the Egyptians. And then they would remember the goodness of God. They'd remember the deliverance of God. And then they would also read about the Ten Commandments. And then they would read in Joel chapter 2. They would read where the Bible says, and afterwards I'll pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughter will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. And your young men will see visions. Even on my servant, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit on those days. And as the leaders would read those passages, the people would be excited, thinking maybe today is a day it's going to happen. Maybe today on this annual festival will be the day that the Holy Spirit would be poured out. So they would come to the meeting together with excitement, enthusiasm. Maybe today would be the day. See, the Jewish people did not attend these feasts and festivals out of strictly obligation. They went because they knew they were going to meet with God. The Jewish people knew if God had called you to a meeting, that meant he was going to be there. God doesn't call people to a meeting and he doesn't show up. He shows up and the Jewish people are excited because God would be there. Maybe today would be the day he would pour out his Holy Spirit. But see, they're also excited to be there because they had an offering to bring. See, part of the feasts and festivals revolved around bringing a, a, an offering of a harvest offering. 
And if you had an offering to bring, if you could bring some of your harvest, you know what? That meant that God blessed you with a harvest. That means over the past year that God gave you the ability to earn money. That God gave you the ability to plant a crop. And you know what God did? He provided the rain that was needed to grow your crop. He provided every single thing that you needed to bring an offering. So the people weren't regretting it, thinking, oh, dang it. I got to go bring a bushel of grain. I got to bring the first stock of corn. They weren't complaining. They were thinking, thank God. God, he provided for me so I can bring an offering. So the Jewish people would get together, they would be eating together, and they're celebrating the faithfulness of God. I think sometimes in our American culture, we don't get what it's like to live in an agricultural society. I mean, these Jewish people, they were dependent. If your crops didn't grow, you nobody ate. If there's no rain, nobody ate. I don't think we realize it because we go to Meyer and every time you go there, there's produce. I don't really think, I wonder where these strawberries came from. Where does this watermelon come from? They just get there. But when you live in an agricultural society, you are dependent. So when God gives you a harvest of a crop, you are so grateful and you are so excited to go bring that down to the festival. So part of these annual festivals, they would all bring their offerings and they would bring sacrifices and they would have this big feast together. Now, if you study these feasts and you don't, you're not too familiar with them, they can all really look pretty similar after a while. It's kind of like they all kind of look the same, and you've got to really dig into them and sit with a couple rabbis to really understand what's different from them. But this Feast of Pentecost, this is a very different celebration. See, the first three feasts of the year that you have, they all start around the death of Jesus where you have Passover. And these first three feasts, they're similar. You bring offerings and you offer forgiveness and you have a big feast together. But what's different about Shavuot, which is a Pentecost, is you did the offerings, you had a big meal together, but you also made sure you invited the poor to the meal. You invited the vulnerable to the meal. That's where Pentecost was different. Because suddenly you're inviting to that table people that couldn't provide for themselves. You're inviting to that table people that didn't have what they needed. You're inviting to that table people that deserved to eat. So suddenly Pentecost has a very different flavor than the other first three feasts of the year. See, the first three feasts of the year, they're great. They're kind of all about your relationship with God. That's really good. We need that. That's hum walking humbly with God. But Pentecost Sunday comes. This is a different feast because the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Shavuot is all about how God is going to work through you to bless other people. And so what do we see on Pentecost Sunday in Acts chapter 2? God's calling you to bless other people through you, but now he's going to give you the Holy Spirit to do it. That's the significance of Pentecost Sunday. You are going to do what God's told you all along, to do justice, love mercy, and, and walk humbly with God, but now you get the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Now life got a whole lot easier if you're a Jewish person. And that's really, really good news. And that's why we celebrate Pentecost Sunday. But so often when we look at Pentecost, we think it's all oh, it's about me. It's about me getting blessed, about me having the Holy Spirit, about me being led by the Holy Spirit, me. And that's all great, great stuff. But we got to remember that a big part of the story of Pentecost is how is God going to bless other people through you? Pentecost Sunday is about being commissioned. It's about being an ambassador. It's about being take care of people that can't take care of themselves. 
And so it's a big day, and it's a big opportunity that we have to celebrate. So we go back to the scripture to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly. And you're like, how do you do justice? I think the best way to do justice is to start with a scripture that says, and walk humbly with our God. I think that's the best place to start, to walk humbly with our God. In James chapter 4, he gives us a little bit of instruction. He says, you know, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I think every one of us would like to be the recipients of a whole lot more grace. And what grace is given to us to walk humbly is simply to walk humbly with God is to walk in complete dependence on him. To not walk humbly with God is to mean you're relying on yourself. You're relying on your own ability. But to walk humbly with our God is a description of how we need to walk. So we go back to the life of Jesus. And how did Jesus walk? On complete dependence on God. I've asked you the question before. We talked about this before. How did Jesus do the stuff that he did? Because he's completely dependent on God and the power of the Holy Spirit that was working through him. And to walk humbly with our God is this how Jesus did what he did. It's the same way we're going to do what God's called us to do. See, the beautiful part of what would happens when you walk humbly with our God is you understand God's heart. You understand God's passion. And when you walk with God, you go the places that he goes. And suddenly what happens in this process is God's desire become your desires. And so suddenly you find the things that you want to do are actually the things that God wants to do. There's nothing better when there is a convergence of God's heart and your heart together because suddenly what he called you to do isn't as difficult. The people that came here yesterday to prayer walking, why did they come here? Because they knew God had put it on their heart. And when God puts something on your heart, it's kind of fun to do. And that's no criticism to people that did not come. Maybe God didn't put that on your heart. But for the people he put it on their heart, they came and they had fun and they loved walking through the neighborhood and they want to come again next week. And some of you here weren't here Saturday, that's because maybe God put something else on your heart. But that's what to walk humbly with our God simply means to open yourself up to what God wants to do through you. But there has to be another step than just walking humbly with God. You need to love mercy. It's interesting that the scripture has to tell us to love mercy. You'd think we would naturally just love mercy because mercy is simply not getting what you deserve, but instead getting the favor of God and getting Jesus. You'd think we'd all be so excited, look what God spared me from, that nobody would have to tell us to love mercy. But I think we're wired a little bit not to be that grateful. So God has to remind us to love mercy, to remind us to love what he's done in our life. And sometimes the best way to remember what God has done in your life is to live in gratitude before God and to consistently be thanking God for what he has done in your life, thanking him for the freedom that he's given you, thanking him for the deliverance that he's given to you. Because when you walk in that area of gratitude, it's a lot easier to love mercy. Now, some of our friends have the spiritual gift of mercy. It comes a little bit easier for them to show mercy. But some of us that don't have the gift of mercy, well, we just have to remember Jesus' words that say, be merciful, just as your Father's merciful. Because when you have mercy, you're going to show a lot more compassion to people. And that brings us to justice. What is justice? Now, like I said earlier, I could probably do this, this sermon on probably, you know, two, three months just to unpack what justice is throughout the Bible. 
But one of the very basic definitions of justice is a person getting what they deserve. Now, a lot of times when we hear a person getting what they deserve, we think punishment. We think justice, we think courtroom, we think a person's guilty, now they're going to get sentenced. That is part of justice, punishment. But the majority of time when the majority of times when the Bible talks about justice, it's talking about restoration. It's talking about restorative justice. It's about giving people what they need because that's God's desires to bless them and to give them every single thing that we need. But so often we think justice just means punishment. I think sometimes we got to work hard to change in our mind that justice is about God blessing people with what they need. And the number one thing that they need is a relationship with Jesus. So Jesus is a constant reminder that we need to love mercy and to walk humbly with God so people can receive what they want. See, over and over again in the Bible, it talks about taking care of widows, takes care of orphans, and immigrants, and the poor. Over and over again through the scripture, you see taking care of the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. I'll give you a little theological term that they use to describe those four. They call it the quartet of the vulnerable. All through scripture, it tells us we need to take care of this quartet. Now, this quartet of the vulnerable isn't just list, limited to these four categories. I think we could all think of various other people groups that need to be included in this category of people that need to be taken care of. And I think that is the scope of the scripture, is to list the most vulnerable in our society who need somebody else to stick up for them. See, that's the interesting thing about God of the Old Testament. He was a God who loved the poor and the marginalized and the broken. We see his heart on display in Deuteronomy 10 where it says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords. He is the great God, the mighty and awesome God, who shows no partiality and cannot be bribed. He ensures that orphans and widows receive justice. He shows love to the foreigners living among you and gives them food and clothing. See, God's character is justice. That's just who he is. That's how he is. That's his desire to show justice to every single person. And because we are created in the image of God, well, doing justice is part of our character as well. It's part of who we are, how we reflect the image of God, is to do justice. But the hard thing is a lot of us need to go through a little deliverance in order to do justice properly. Because a lot of us have a lot of mindsets that are not exactly biblical. I love how Tim Keller says, to do justice is becoming, let me start over. To do justice is becoming concerned about the most vulnerable, the poor, and the marginalized members of our society, and then making long-term personal sacrifices in order to serve their interest, needs, and cause. That's justice. When you allow God to stir in your heart, who do you want to care for? Who's he put on your heart that you're going to pray for? That you're strategically going to say, hey, I need to make an effort to reach these people. I think that's part of what it means to do church differently. That collectively as a family, we need to think of how could we do church differently so we can maybe identify some people or people groups or ministries that we could say, we need to strategically figure out how to serve these people well. I think that's what we need to do to add more of a missional thrust to our services. 
And what's off, because often the biggest obstacle for people that are marginalized is they have limited access to what they really need. And that's part of what justice is doing. It's helping people have access to what they need to do. But you know what? Sometimes we don't like to do justice. Sometimes we don't like to do our neighbor. We don't like to love our neighbor. In Luke chapter 10, there's a story of a lawyer that comes to Jesus. And he says to Jesus, he says, Teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus doesn't answer him. Instead, he asks him a question. Jesus looks to the lawyer and he said, What does the Old Testament law of Moses say? The man replies, You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your mind, and you must love your neighbor as yourself. So it's pretty obvious that this lawyer is a pretty smart guy because he answers to Jesus an answer that's a combination of Deuteronomy 6 and Leviticus 19. He takes these two scriptures, puts them together, and replies to Jesus. This man knew the right answer. You're like, why are you asking? I think the reason why he's asking is he's trying to get out of loving his neighbor. I think he's trying to figure out a way. How can I inherit eternal life? How can I please God without loving my neighbors? Because that's kind of hard to do. It's easy to love God. It's easy to worship God. But you know that loving neighbor part? That's kind of a hard thing to do. And he's a lawyer. So he's going to try to figure out a systematic, easy way to get out of it. So what does Jesus do? He replies to the man by telling him the story of the Good Samaritan. Listen to the story in Luke 10. Jesus replied with a story. A Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him from his clothes, beat him up, and left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along. But when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed by him. Next, a temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there. But he also passed on the other side of the street. Then a despised Samaritan came along. And when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where he took care of him. The next day he handed the innkeeper two silver coins telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits, Jesus asked. The man replied, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said, go and do the same. That's an interesting story that Jesus told this man. I think one interesting thing is, why did the Levite, the temple assistant, and the priest, why didn't they help the guy on the side of the road? I mean, after all, these are the church people. These are the leaders of the local temple. You'd think if anybody was going to help, these two guys would. But they didn't. They crossed the street and walked by. I think I came up with four reasons why I think they didn't help Jesus. See, the first reason, I think, is because of racial tension. I think it was because of racism that they didn't stop to help him. Because you remember in the story, it talks about a despised Samaritan. So right here in the story, you see there's tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. Samaritans don't like Jews. Jews don't like Samaritans. Samaritans are Jews that married Gentiles. So the pure Jews were like, no, they're not real people over here. 
They're only half Jew. They're half Jew, half Samaritan. So the Jews didn't like them. So you have this racial tension built up. I think when the priest and the Levite were walking down the road and they saw the dead man on the side of the road, they looked at him and they thought to themselves, I'm not sure if that guy is a Jew or a Samaritan. He's beaten up so much, I can't really tell. Is he a Jew or is he a Samaritan? And the fact that his clothes were taken away, you couldn't identify his clothing either. I'm wondering, and the text doesn't say it, but I'm wondering if the priest and the Levite went to the other side of the road because they're like, no way am I going to help a Samaritan. I think that's one reason that we don't do justice is because sometimes it's racial. We're not there to help other people that we should. I think another reason why, a potential reason why the priest and the Levite didn't stop is because they wondered, what would other people think? They wondered, what would other people think if they're on the side of the road helping that person? I think one of the things that they thought, could have thought it easily as well, if a person beat that guy up, and I go help them, maybe they'll beat me up too. So just to play it safe, I probably shouldn't help that guy. Because on top of it, what would people think if they saw me on the side of the road with this person that's all beat up and bandaged? What, what if they think I did it? We get nervous quickly. But what if I'm doing something and other people are watching and they're going to judge me? I don't like that. A lot of times we don't step out and help us because, well, I'm worried about what other people are going to think. So we play it safe. And we go to the other side of the street. Another reason, I think this is probably the most obvious, you just get too busy. You're just too busy. I can't help that person. They're half dead anyway, you know? Odds are they're going to die, so let me just get on with my life anyway. Or I'm too busy, and well, they probably deserve that. How do they get themselves in this situation? So we cross to the other side of the street. I think we're really good at talking ourselves into reasons that we cross to the other side of the street. But you read the story, and you do get the conviction that, okay, well... I guess the point of the story is that I'm supposed to be the Good Samaritan. That I'm supposed to be the one that stops, takes care of the guy, I overcome my fear and anxiety, and I'm just going to help the guy anyway. But see, I think the good news of this Luke chapter 10 is you and I are not called to be the Good Samaritan. We are not the Good Samaritan in the story. Jesus is the Good Samaritan in the story. And Jesus will always be the Good Samaritan in the story. See, Jesus was a Good Samaritan. He was the man that was despised. He was the man that was rejected. And he was a man that was killed because people didn't understand who he was. So he fits the role of being the Samaritan. But also when Jesus stops to help the man, Jesus is the only one who can look at broken humanity and have compassion. Jesus is the only one who can stop and pour oil and wine into a wound and to see it healed. Jesus is the only one 
that can pay the price for this man's restoration. Jesus is the only one that has the compassion. And Jesus is the only one that has the power to raise a half-dead man and bring him back to life. See, the story is about Jesus being the Good Samaritan. But it's also a story about us walking humbly with Jesus. So we show people our love and our kindness and our compassion and our mercy and our faithfulness. We show that to people. And while we are representing Christ, showing the fruit of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is with us by the power of his spirit, and he's the one pouring oil and wine into a wound. He's the one bandaging the wounds. He's the one speaking life into the person. He's the one paying the price for that person to be restored. We don't have to have the pressure of being the good Samaritan because we can't do it. But we can show kindness. We can show mercy. We can show love. We can show compassion, and we can walk on the same side of the street. That's what we're called to do. That's why we get the Holy Spirit. Because the Holy Spirit coming in us takes the pressure off us, and it puts the pressure where it needs to be, on Jesus. He's the only one that can do it. So that gives us each freedom. I'm not responsible to resurrect a dead person. I'm not responsible to heal a person. But I am responsible to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. I can do those three things. And I can do them because that's what Christ did for me. That's the beautiful part about Micah. God never asks you to do anything that he hasn't already done for you. God has shown each of us mercy. He's shown each of us justice. He's shown us how he walks humbly with his Father. So to do justice and love mercy and to walk humbly with God is just a celebration that we can do it because God has given us every single thing that we need. So today I want to close our message today by having communion together. Do you all have one of these? Everybody have one? If you don't have one, raise your hand. All right, Sammy. The Lord, back, oh, Ted, yeah. Ted will serve you. And Pat needs one too. Oh, you have one. We're going to celebrate that we have the Holy Spirit. We're celebrating today that Jesus came. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. He said to his followers, wait for your Holy Spirit. And we celebrate that we have the Holy Spirit. We're not like thousands of years ago where we're waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. We got the Holy Spirit. So we can celebrate. So hopefully you can open this package. <laughs> So the first test is get the little layer off and take the little wafer. And put that little wafer in your hand. This is the body of Jesus. It's a representation of the body of Jesus who was beaten 
who was despised. He was rejected. He was a man of sorrow, acquainted with grief, so that we could walk in freedom. So we take this and celebrate the life of Jesus. And then we pull back the other layer and we get to our little grape juice. And it's the blood of Jesus that gives us power. It's the blood of Jesus that gives us deliverance. It's the blood of Jesus that brings us freedom. So we thank God that we can have freedom from the enemy. That the curses of death have been broken over us. That the weapons that have been formed against you by the evil one have been broken. That the weapons formed against your family have been broken by the blood of Jesus. That the weapons formed against the church has been broken by the blood of Jesus. We can drink this celebrating that we live in freedom. I told you that there's four reasons why I think they walked on the other side of the street. I think the fourth reason why they went to the other side of the street is because they thought, what am I going to do? What am I going to say? How am I going to help? I don't know how. I'm not medical. Blood kind of grosses me out. What am I going to say to this guy? I think we all have that question at times. I can't do it. Let the next person come and do it. But see, that weakness is your commodity. Because in Romans 8, verse 26, it says, and the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. That's our invitation to help anytime we feel weak. That is walking humbly with God when you feel weak. Because when you feel weak, that's an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to work through you. That is the opportunity that we have. See, there's no more excuses. <laughs> your weakness is your commodity. So, Father, I thank you that we have everything we need. We thank you for the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit that is in our life. We thank you, Lord, for the freedom that we have. And so, God, we come before you today and we say thank you for Pentecost. Thank you for justice. God, I pray right now that your Holy Spirit would do a work in each and every one of us here or online or watching later in the week. That, Lord, you would help us to walk humbly with you. That you'd help us to be people that love mercy and that you'd help us to be people that do justice. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we cross the street. Forgive us from the times where we might have been racist or we might have worried too much about what others think about me. Or forgive us the times we just said, I'm too busy. Or the times we crossed the street because we said, I don't know what to do. God, I pray that you would forgive us. And God, I pray that today, Pentecost 2022, would be a new opportunity for us to walk in boldness and to walk in passion and to walk in compassion so that we can do justice. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.